The Grancidillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, really meaningful, and uh, it's interesting because the university's mission talks about uh, preparing students for lives of purpose, service, and leadership. And I think uh, your remarks tonight certainly connect very deeply with that mission. And we really appreciate you being here and, and sharing with us. I think I'm going to go straight to questions from the audience because I know a lot of you would like to ask questions. And there's the first hand right there. Uh, I got to interview him earlier on a podcast, so I had that privilege already. So I'll let the audience do it now. Thanks, Jordan. Anyway, so everybody can hear. My name is Alex Brug. Um, I'm a second-year student here at the full-time program. Uh, my dad passed away earlier this year, and you were his, uh, his favorite player. So it's an honor and a privilege. Um, you've been called by many like the greatest evaluator of talent ever in the NBA, um, when you were an executive for the Lakers especially. Um, so I want to know how that talent came about, how you kind of got that ability, and how that's changed now with technology coming into the analytics portion of a talent, uh, talent evaluation now in the NBA. Thank you. Um, as I say, there's no basketball experts, okay? There's some people that seem to have good fortune. And we had a lot of good fortune drafting late in the draft where we drafted very viable players. I will tell you, you can be the smartest person in the world. You can have more skill than anyone. But there's one skill that few people talk about. If you don't have it, regardless of what you're doing to your life, you're not going to succeed a work ethic. Hard work is a skill. Um, you know, people talk about basketball IQ. Um, there are players that have genius IQs that can't remember a play. I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing. You, start, you went to Princeton, you've got to be kidding, you can't remember this. <laughs> You'll have other kids that their minds, every mind is wired differently, okay? Why do we all have different interests, okay? Why are certain things capture our imagination? Um, I can see movies. I saw a movie one, The King's Speech. One of the greatest movies I've ever seen, okay? What, because he overcame something that was horribly detrimental to someone who was gonna be the monarch of a country. But I would say hard work and knowledge of a game. The other thing in basketball, everyone always wants to draft stars, okay? They throw the word superstar around so loosely in the NBA, it's a joke. There's probably only five or six in the whole league. There's a bunch of terrific players, but they're not superstars. And another thing I believe is in substance over style. The NBA is about style over substance. It's a simple game. It's a game where it's about footwork, it's about thinking, but more importantly, to know your limitations. Players who don't know their limitations and players who can't fill a role because everyone can't be a starter, but a guy can have an enormously successful career and very much like yourself, everyone has aspirations to lead a giant corporation or something like that. You can have enormous influence on any organization you have if you have a work ethic, but also knowing that 
as much as you push to try to get to the top, you may not get to the top floor. You might get to the, you might get next to the top floor, but you're still extremely valuable if you have a work ethic and knowledge, and more important, if you're a team player. I have been on teams, I used to call it addition by subtraction, okay? I'm gonna give you two examples. We traded a very unpopular trade that I made, okay? It turned out great. We traded Norm Nixon, we just won a championship, for an undraft, undrafted rookie who was Byron Scott, okay? Boy, oh boy, Jack Nicholson, who obviously loves Lakers, he wore black. And I said to him, <laughs> no, he wore black for three games. I said, I said to him, what the hell is this all about? He said, that's the dumbest trade I've ever seen. I said, well, I said, just wait and see, just wait and see. So he really asked me, why did you make that trade? I don't call Irvin Johnson, I don't call him Magic Johnson, okay? I call him Irvin. I said, let me ask you a question, Jack. I said, do you like Irvin Johnson or do you like Magic Johnson? He said, I like Magic Johnson. Well, I said, he will be Magic Johnson every night because he's going to have the ball in his hand. Without the ball in his hands, he was Irvin Johnson. But with the ball in his hands, incredible leader. Great. Inspiring to watch play. That was one of them. Another one was Houston beat us in 19, I believe, 84 in the playoff. And the owner of the team then was Jack, uh, I mean, Jerry Buss was the owner of the team. And of course, Magic Johnson and him were very close. And uh, too close, as a matter of fact. And uh, so I get a call and from Dr. Buss and said to me, we, we just made a trade. I said, oh, really? I said, tell me about this trade. He said, we're going to trade James Worthy for Mark Aguirre and Roy Tarpley. I said, what? I got real quiet. Now, he owns a team, and he's a boss. And I said to him, we can't do this. I said, you're going to take a kid that's going to be out of basketball because he's got a terrible drug problem. He's going to be out of basketball any day now. And Roy Tarpley was a player, and he's now clean and sober. And he was a very good player, and he was big. Houston, Pat Riley's headlines in the newspaper, we have to get big. I said, no. We don't have to get big. I said, we have to go back and play the way we know how to play. We can't walk the ball for it. We've got to run the ball for it. And so in the course of this conversation, he had made a trade with Dallas for these two players. And the owner of the Mavericks then was a very religious man, okay? Now, for you ladies and some of you gentlemen, I don't know if you've ever been in the locker room before, but the language is not always pure there, okay? So after I told Jerry Butts, I said, I'm not working here anymore. I said, this is your baby, I'm done. Called me back, he said, we shouldn't do this trade. And I said, no, we should not do this trade. He said, you call Mr. Carter. So I called Mr. Carter. And Mr. Carter, very nice man, and uh, he, we get in this conversation. I can't believe that you guys, Jerry told me we're gonna do this. So I said, Mr. Carter, I said, we're not doing it. We've changed our mind. And then he, really started to pontificate about ethics and stuff. And um, my language wasn't very good, okay? <laughs> and so I hung the phone up quietly on Mr. Carter after I said what I had said. Well, 
by not making that trade, we won three straight championships, okay? But again, you're going to be thrust in a position, all of you are going to be thrust in a position where you have to make a tough change. And do you have the nerve to do it? If it doesn't work, are you going to blame someone else? I tell you, everything bad that happened with us, I took the, I took the blame for it. Everything good, someone else got it, got the credit. Because some people are afraid to be criticized. I'm not. I'm not. I'm too stubborn. Too crazy. But I think that all of this stuff put together, another crisis we had, sort of a crisis. Uh, we had a young man by the name of what, Kobe Bryant, right? <laughs> and we had a player by the name of Eddie Jones who made the All-Star team. Addition by subtraction. We traded him. Everyone was incensed that we had traded an All-Star player. We knew what we had with Kobe Bryant. One of the best trades we ever made because he needed to play. He needed to play. And it's worked out handsomely for them. All things don't work out. You know, you'll, I say, you know what the worst thing in the world is? Let me tell you what the worst thing in the world is. Worst thing in the world is to draft a player and he's sitting over on the bench and don't get in the game. He's over there looking around the crowd and getting fat. That's the worst feeling in the world. <laughs> okay? That is the worst. And you're saying to yourself, God, I don't want to wish him any bad luck, but I hope I don't see him tomorrow. <laughs> Did Jack Nicholson ever acknowledge that that was a good decision or not? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, oh, he said it was, it was a good deal. And, and what's really funny, there were like the three amigos on the Lakers team were Nixon, um, Johnson, and Cooper. Uh, the three amigos became Scott, Cooper, and Johnson. And to this day, they are really close, to the, even to this day. But he was one of the great kids, and he let Magic Johnson be Magic Johnson instead of Irvin. That's great. Yes, right here. Um, my, my name's Jan Gray, and uh, hi, Jan Charles Gray, and I uh, taught in the early '80s at the business school, and then I'm in PK '69. I was really, you know, I thought your presentation was really fabulous, and uh, I'm going to read those books. I wrote them all down, so. I know they're good recommendations. <clears throat> but I live in the Hollywood Hills, and I was driving over here. And unfortunately, it takes about an hour and 45 minutes. I know minutes. that. <laughs> so <laughs> I printed out your uh, uh, biography on Wikipedia. It's like 22 pages or something. So like in about page 11 or 12, it talked about some of the time. And I think it might have been when Wilt Chamberlain joined the team. And there was a lot of acrimony uh, you know, in the locker room and out of the locker room. And I wondered how you used those, or was that part of the honing of your skills in dealing with that particular issue when it was, which is probably, I don't know, 1970, 71, 72, Stone Age is whenever it was. <laughs> yeah. It's only well, yesterday for me. Listen, there wasn't a teammate I played with that I didn't like. Not one. I didn't look at him as someone who was threatening to me. But if a guy had a horrible attitude, I didn't want him on the team, I'll be honest with you, I didn't want him on the team. It wasn't that at all. Uh, you know, I think the newspapers, there was a story that Weston Baylor didn't want him here. I said, oh my God, what a, 
you know, you guys will write anything. I mean, we are held accountable for our words. And a sports writer, you will get somewhere in the newspaper, they'll write something this big, you know, retracting something that was said. I have no idea where that came from. It simply was not true. He and I became best of friends. I want to tell you a really funny story. How much time do we have here tonight, anyway? You're fine. Okay, I'm going to tell you a really funny story. <laughs> Will Chamberlain and I became very good friends, okay? And he wrote a book, and he was, I think he mentioned 20,000 something. Something like okay. that, yeah. Somewhere in that neighborhood. Well, I know he can't count very well. So that's <laughs> But anyway, he had held out, and we were playing at Kansas City Royals now, who are the Kansas City, I mean, the uh, Sacramento Kings. And he had held out, and so, hell, I didn't think he was going to be there. I get a call in my room about 6.30, and I always ate very early, particularly on the road. And here's, it's Wilt. He said, I said, when the hell are you? And he says, I said, when are you, you going to play or not? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to play. He said, I'm here in Kansas City. I said, really? He said, yeah, come on up to the room for dinner. I said, I've already eaten, but I'll come up and see how you're doing, okay? So I go up to the room, and um, I open the door. He's got a towel tied around his neck like this, okay? He's got a pair of basketball shorts on. That's all he had on. And I walked in there, and there's a table about from there to there. And there's this barbecue house in Kansas City, very famous, Gates, okay? And it's in a, it's in a um, minority area, and we all went there, okay? So I walk in there, and I look around, and I said, oh, my God, I said, what is this guy doing? Um, there were three racks of ri uh, ribs, okay? And I'm telling you, ribs down there are like this long. There were six, seven up, so he drank seven up like it was water, okay? And there were six of them in ice. There was a two one-pound brisket sandwiches. There was coleslaw. There was potato salad. There were, there were barbecued beans. Um, barbecued chicken. I mean, I'm sitting there and I said to myself, oh my God, what's going to happen here tonight? Now, he hasn't even worked out at all. So I walk in there, and here he is with, let's say, his, you know, his big, tall. He looked taller than he really was because he was all legs, okay? And I walk in there, and um, Wilt stuttered a little bit, okay? And, and um, <laughs> he starts eating. He said, won't you have something? I, I said, well, I said, you got a knife? He said, yeah, there's a knife. So I cut myself a little piece of this brisket sandwich. By the way, it's great. I could hardly eat this brisket sandwich. And by the time we were in there, there wasn't much food left on this table. <laughs> and I think there was about half of one of these seven ups left. I said, how in the world, have you been working out? Nope. I said, how in the hell are you gonna play tomorrow night? I said, there's no way you can play. Well, he goes out, gets 25 rebounds. And when I left there that night, I got up and this towel, instead of kind of sleek, it looked like he was pregnant. Okay? <laughs> I have no idea how a man could eat that much, but drink six bottles of Seven Up like this. I mean, it was the most. It's like you see those see those old movies where these guys are gnawing bones. But there's one other funny one about his eating too. 
Um, you know, most players, I could not eat. I'd, I'd get sick, okay? I had to eat at 2.30 or otherwise I'd be sick or so much adrenaline run through your body. And Wilt would come to the games and he came to the games and here, here's how he got dressed, okay? He never taped his ankles. He'd put one pair of socks on, everyone else played with two. He'd put his clothes on and he'd take two, um, he'd take two band-aids and put them over his nipples. Um, <laughs> But he sweat so much, okay? And so we had a big meeting the night before in, in, in Atlanta. We were playing Atlanta Hawks, and, and our coach was, our general manager was coming giving us hell because we lost a couple games we shouldn't have lost. And so we go out and we kick Atlanta's fanny, and he said the last thing he said that night, he says, I don't want anyone eating in the locker room before the games, and especially hot dogs, okay? Next night we're in Cleveland. He said, it's gonna be a fine if you do this. So the next night in Cleveland, I see Wilt talking to the ball boy. And so pretty soon the ball boy comes in, he's got six hot dogs. <laughs> well, about that time, the general manager who was my co, who recruited me in college, the general manager, he walks in and he looks at Wilt and Wilt said, hey Fred, I got you a couple hot dogs. He said, <laughs> But he was, he was really, I really liked him, okay? I really did. And uh, he helped prolong my career. Uh, I think I helped prolong his career. Um, helped us win our only championship. And the only sad thing about that, someone I admired and still admire, Elgin Baylor, really wasn't part of it. And I thought it was one of the saddest things ever. But um, it was one of those magical years. And um, he was such a huge part of that. Uh, us winning that year, but he was he was a character. Uh, there's nothing he did. He he knew who he knew who the name of the guy was. The, the uh, what the tomb of the unknown soldier. He knew the guy's name. I promise you. I mean, he knew everything. He thought he did. <laughs> I have. He said he once said he drove from New York City to San Francisco in 23 hours. <laughs> so he knew he exaggerated a lot. Elvin's got a question back here. Hi, Jerry again. Hi there. I was really moved by your speech tonight. And you answered a question I've always wondered about you when I was in Memphis, Tennessee. I used to go to the games all the time to watch the Grizzlies play. I sat in the box right there with the mayor, and you sat right next to us in the next box. And I always asked the question, I would say, why would, why would he sit by himself and talk to anybody, and then just before the game is over, you would leave? And I thought you was just want to be by yourself. You answer that question now. Now I understand why you left. You were shy. You were I was, shy. I was what? Shy. Shy. I you still, were shy. I can still be shy, believe it or not. But I just want you, you answer that question. You wouldn't think it, but I still but, can uh, be. Yeah, because I used to watch you all. We, we sat next to each other, right in the mayor's box. You sat right next to us. Now you, you know why? No, one of the reasons I stopped working Thank for the you. Lakers, this is pretty interesting. We had the best teams in the league by far. I couldn't even stand and watch this play. I thought somebody was going to get hurt. I'd go to the damn movies. Somebody'd see me in the movie. What are you doing? I, I, well, I've taped the game. I'll watch it. Um, you know, the crowning, the crown jewel of, for every team is to win an NBA championship. We're playing the Indiana Pacers in the year 2000. It was my last year at the Lakers. This is when I knew I'd had enough. And we have two games on our home court. And I know we're going to win. And so you'd think I'd want to be there. Where was I? 
I was in San Luis Obispo. I drove up there, and I had a friend of mine to game. I said, call me if it's good news, okay? He called me, and he says, it's real good news. And so that's how much I enjoyed basketball. But actually, I had to be hospitalized two or three times for exhaustion. Um, not a lot of fun. Um, to not The thing that brought me the most joy in my life obviously brought me the most pain. And I know it's pretty crazy, but I am crazy. Now, earlier you had shared about your transition to the Grizzlies and how significant that experience was for you. I would love for you to share that with the crowd and why that <clears throat> was such a significant achievement for you. Well, you know, I think working <clears throat> in a big market, uh, you know, there's a lot more cachet and obviously uh, greater financial resources to get things accomplished. And I'd always wanted to work for a team that had no success, none, and where everyone says you can't do anything. And I think if I ever had a sense of accomplishment in my life, what I was really proud of was my second year in Memphis. The most games they had ever won was 23. And going to Memphis was, and somebody said, oh, it's going to be difficult for you. You used to Los Angeles. Hell, I'm a West Virginia boy. I'm not a Los Angeles boy. Memphis it's was a big south. city to you, wasn't it? What's that? Memphis was a big city to you. Well, it's, it's not <laughs> like Los Angeles, trust me. You can, <laughs> doesn't take you an hour and a half to drive uh, five miles. That's right. Um, <laughs> but the greatest sense of accomplishment I think I ever felt, and I felt that maybe I had really done a good job because I never really wanted to focus on We won 50 games that year and made the playoff. And I mean, it was amazing how the city rallied because they're used to watching teams and win 20-some games. Let me ask you a question. If the Lakers ever win 23 games, how many fans are going to be gone? A bunch of them. They're spoiled here, okay? They're spoiled. Those fans had nothing to root for, and that city is not like Los Angeles. And they, take great they took great community pride, and I'll never forget the night of our first playoff. They have a beautiful building that was built down there for them to play. It's a very poor city. This place, everyone had a white shirt on, okay? It was like, I, I, I stood and looked at this and I said, my God. I said, I didn't know if this was really possible, but it was possible. Because a lot of people working very hard, a lot of risk taking. What's the difference between a risk and a gamble? Anyone have a simple explanation? I've got a simple one for you. Okay? If you got a hundred dollars and you go to Las Vegas, you take the hundred dollars and you bet it on a hand of blackjack. You lose it. That's a gamble. But if you get four twenty-five dollar chips, okay, and you lose one of those, you've got a means to recover. And that's why risk-taking is better than gambling. You're not putting all your assets in one basket. And I always felt that that was something that uh, working with the Lakers, uh, Jerry Buss knew how I was about being aggressive and working in Memphis. Um, and that book, Blink, because I trusted my instincts so much. But it wasn't taking a risk. We were taking a risk. We weren't taking a gamble. And the best risk takers do the best, by the way. Yes, right here. Um, I believe that sadness is an asset, and I wonder when you realize that for yourself. Say so that, ask the question again. I believe that sadness is an asset. 
Sadness. Sadness. Sadness is an S. And when did you realize that for yourself? Well, my wife, in this book that I wrote, said she's a sad. She said I'm the saddest person she's ever been around. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's quite right, but um, I am my own worst critic. I expect way too much out of myself, and I expect everyone to have the same work ethic and care as much as I care. It's all about winning. It's all about giving your best. And in putting so much pressure on yourself, um, if we lost a game when I was playing, I, I mean, I had a lot of huge scoring nights, a lot of huge score. I had a lot of nights when I could have scored 60 points, but we didn't do it then. And I had a lot of nights when I scored 50 points. But if we lost, I blame it. It was my fault. It was my fault. And I was never, and John Wooden asked me before he died, and he's one of the, he wasn't a basketball coach, he was a life teacher, he really was, and one of the most unique men I've ever been around in my life. And, he, and we were talking about it. He said, why were you always so hard on yourself? He said, did you take the credit when you won? I said, absolutely not. He said, why should you take the credit when you lost? I said, because I was good enough to control the games, and I didn't do enough to help our team win. And I've always been that way, and it's, it's a horrible way to live a life. It really is a horrible way. But it's what drives me. It's what keeps me competitive. It's what keeps me going. And, you know, everyone wants to be happy. I'm not a happy person all the time. And I will tell you, uh, there's something in my life that, uh, that I have battled all my life, depression. Um, it's the worst thing in the world. And, um, but I think it's made me a tougher, better person because I know how to get through it. I do know how to get through it. And most of it has been, I think, stress-related to what I, the only thing I cared about when I played or when I worked. When, 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 when. That was it. If you, somebody wanted me to work for them, if you didn't want to work as hard as I did, if you didn't care about winning, then I, there's no way that I could work with you or for you. But I was just so driven, and I'm still driven, but not to the extent I was before. Let's go back here. Yeah. Probably do one more question after no, this. No, this we'll lady break. Ask a question. We'll, we'll, yeah, start here, and then we'll come back here. Yeah, go ahead. Say it again. Would you say you face tougher challenges during your years as an NBA player or as an executive working for a certain team? That's a good question. Players? A very good question. Uh, you know, I didn't feel any challenges as a player because I made the all-pro team every year. So I know I was one of the five best players in the league. I knew. I didn't vote for myself. I did not vote for myself. Other people did it. And as much as you try to deny it or not even confirm it, but probably the biggest you know, I don't like the word manage. Uh, I don't think it's a good word. I think it's working with people. But I took the experiences that I had as a player, and I said there's two or three things that were never going to happen. There was never going to be a pay player that was going to be underpaid on our team. Never. If anything, he was going to be overpaid. He was going to be treated like a human being. And if he had to be traded, I was going to tell him he got traded. It wasn't because he was a horse's buying, because we wouldn't have one on our team anyway. But I just saw this stuff happen when I was a player, and we had no rights. I mean, <laughs> um, 
One year, I led the league in scoring. I was second in assists. Um, I was the only unanimous choice for the All-Pro team, and the players voted for it. It wasn't a popularity kind. The players voted for it. That was thrilling because I was a minority, and my black counterparts voted for me. I can't tell you how that made me feel. So I go in and I said, oh my gosh, I said, and we didn't have agents, okay? And so they said to me, well, we want you to take a pay cut. <laughs> a pay cut? Are you kidding me? Um, <clears throat> but it was ridiculous. And you know when you see the players today, uh, the challenges they face um, are, can they stay in the league? Because they're highly compensated. Um, they're really highly compensated. But the tragedy you see, I, I, I just think, we see so many kids that make $100 million, $200 million in <clears throat> a couple of years after they're done, they're completely broke. It's a tragedy that the league hasn't addressed that, and I don't know how you can address it. It's a tragedy. Some wonderful, wonderful people that they're still household names that are, I mean, I mean, it breaks my heart every time I see it. It really does. And, but I think the challenge is, I just try to imagine myself as a player, but knowing full well <clears throat> that you were judge, jury, and executioner. And that means you can draft him, you can trade him, you can waive him. And I will tell you right now, the one job that I wouldn't want any of you have to have to do would be the following, to tell a player goodbye. Number one, he probably hates you because he's in a place where he felt comfortable. Number two, tell a player that we're going to waive you because we basically don't think he can play anymore. And now remember, these kids had the same dreams and hopes and goals that I had. All of a sudden, when they're the smartest, the best equipped mentally to play the game, physically they can't do it. That's the worst thing about being involved because I loved players. They were like my kids. And um, that's the cruelest thing that you would ever want to do. You wouldn't want to do that. And it's hard. It's really hard. Let's go back up here and we better end with this. Right. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Ming. I'm from Beijing and I uh, graduated from uh, law school at Pepperdine. Um, I, um, I want to be an international sport agent. I just, uh, you know, I don't know what, what's your view about just uh, NBA was so successful internationally and, and um, just have you imagined that NBA will be a, one of the most popular games in the world when you play? That was a kind of a two-part question, right? Yeah, just talk about the international reach of the NBA. And well, first of all, you know, the NBA has worldwide appeal, but it's not, it's not like soccer, okay, not at all. Um, there's certain things I don't want to say because I don't want the NBA to find me. Um, <laughs> and we would not want to be responsible for that at all. A lot of wealthy people in here. <laughs> um, you know, that stuff is not as successful as you think it is, okay? Let me put it that way. It promotes basketball, but it hasn't achieved the results financially they want. The biggest market, really now is China, uh, China solely. 
Um, you know, they talk about expanding and having basketball in Europe. The best basketball played in Europe is played in Spain. At one time it was Italy, but Spain has the best basketball. Uh, have some terrific young players. Argentina had a great program for, for a while, great. You wouldn't, there were one time there were five Argentina kids playing in the NBA. They were all first round draft picks. Um, but the problem is there's no facilities in Europe to be able to play an NBA game. How in the hell could you have a schedule if you're in Los Angeles and you had to play in London? They don't even like basketball in London. Um, so to me, it's a long shot that we'd, we'll ever see that. Um, the largest grossing sports franchise, what would it be? In what country would it be in? Would it be in the U.S. or would it be in Europe? Sure. FC Barcelona. Sure. FC Barcelona. Huge. It's one of the huge brand names. And I think I saw it in Forbes magazine. You wouldn't think I read sport, Forbes, but I do sometimes. Um, <laughs> they grossed $425 million, that franchise did. Mind-boggling number, mind-boggling. And so soccer over there, there's two or three Americans that own soccer teams. Stan Kroenke, who owns the Denver Nuggets, owns, I think, I think it, no, he doesn't, uh, Glazer owns United Manchester, and he paid a billion, $250 million for it. And this was a few years ago. So soccer worldwide, uh, and particularly in England, France, Spain, well, almost all those countries over there. It's a huge sport. It's a huge sport. And they, um, I mean, you, you, one of the greatest experiences that I would wish that everyone could do is to go to a European basketball game. Amazing. Well, it's amazing what they do over there. I mean, these people are marching around. You everyone here over here sits in their seats and they'll get up for a great play. They're beating drums and chanting the whole damn game. And if a team gets beat, they stay there the whole week. Um, obviously, they're drinking a lot. Um, I was at a game in Greece one time, and I got there early because there was, two, there was a doubleheader. And it's about an 18,000 arena. And I get there early and I get in my seat. And people will just come in and they'll sit in the seat there and some guy will come up and you're sitting in my seat. Well, you go sit over there. <laughs> and it is the most unbelievable thing you have ever seen. And it's thrilling. The noise, the, the passion. Do you think we're a really nationalistic country today? Like we used to be? Not even close. If you go and watch these people over there, oh my God. I mean, it's, they have such passion. Um, it's just amazing to watch. Um, and half the time, you're over watching some very good young players play. You end up watching, the, you can't help watching the people. It's so interesting. But um, there's a lot of good basketball players from all over the world. There really are. But the best ones still come from this country, by far. Well, we had better conclude there. We could go on all night, I'm sure, uh, asking Jerry questions. But thank you so much well, for you. being here. It's been a privilege to have you.